And you got earphones on, right? Yeah. All right. All right. So we're good. Start. Okay. We're recording. All right. Welcome to the Welding Codex with Gary Pace and Peter Kinney. Today we're going to talk about um, Clause 5 in 2015 in AWS D1.1 Structural Steel Welding Code, which in the 2020 version is Clause number 7. So let's start at the beginning with the scope, 5.1. All applicable provisions of this section shall be observed in the fabrication and erection of the welded assemblies and structures produced by any processes acceptable under this code. So not too much there, but we go from the scope right into the base metals. Um, so this is what lies out, tells us what our base metals need to be. So it ties it back to the contract. And the key words here are um, specified base metal. Well, um, the contract document shall designate the specification and classification of the base metal to be used. When welding involved in the structure, approved base metals listed in table 3.1 or table 4.9 should be used wherever possible. So what's that telling us, Pete? So what that's basically saying is whenever possible, use those I don't want to call them pre-qualified but they're materials that have been generally tried and true uh, in the industry they've been there for either a lot of them been there for a long time uh, there are new ones it is a dynamic table it does live um, so when uh, some specifications are no longer listed uh, they may be removed and new ones added. So, but it's basically saying, go to those tables and let's go forward. Unless the contract's got something funny like weld on popsicle sticks as your approved base metal. So that's what it's saying. Right. And it's telling you not, to, it's, it's telling you that it's generally a good idea to stay with the materials that are listed there. Not to say that you couldn't go out of bounds and get some kind of material from a, you know, a, a, a German material or a Russian material or some other material and go with that if you were building, I don't know, a, a power plant in Czechoslovakia and they somehow told you to use this and the materials were, you know, weren't a standard ASTM material that's listed in table 3.1. But it says it's a good idea whenever possible to use this. You can color outside the lines just as long as the engineer's on board and that's what's specified. So in 5.2, it goes through and gives you some information on base metal for weld tabs, backing, and spacers. Um, tells you how to do, utilize those. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to get too much into that. I'm going to head on over into one of the more important ones. Um, 5.3, welding consumables and electrode requirements. You want to dive in there, Pete? Sure. And uh, just so people know, it's these are almost identical sections between the two versions. Uh, this One is 5.5. The other one is 7 point uh, corresponding. Those are almost all the same. Um, so with welding consumables, um, it talks about Certifications forum. A lot of those are all furnished by the 
electrode manufacturer and you have they have to be suitable for the material you're welding right right and so if you go into 5.3 it's telling you the first thing off is certification of electrodes and or flux combinations so it's telling you that you know when requested by the engineer the contractor or fabricator shall furnish certification that the electrode or electrode flux combination conforms to the requirements of the classification so if the engineer comes along and says hey I want to see what you guys are welding with. Give me some paperwork on this welding rod. You as the contractor are required to furnish that to the um, engineer. Um, suitability of classifications. There's some requirements in here on shielding gases that you know tells you what the shielding gases need to conform to. One of the big ones that a lot of times you'll get hit on is 5.3.1.4. Four, um, storage this is a big one this is where a lot of people can get dinged because they'll uh, be storing their filler materials and they won't be storing them correctly Pete have you ever run across any uh, situations where people have run afoul of storage conditions oh it's it, it happens all the time and I think the the biggest uh, the biggest one is your your SMAW or stick rods where they're just uh, especially where you're supposed to have uh, a life of the uh, coating when it's exposed to uh, the environment and they're just basically sitting out there not in an oven and and this is this is for code work we're I mean we're not talking about I mean welding in your backyard for something where you just use an old refrigerator with a light bulb in it this is code quality work, so we we need to step up from the the light bulb and into an, an oven of some sort, um, or use smaller containers where you open and use what you have, heated quivers. Um, that's probably the biggest offender. The uh, other one that comes to mind is uh, either GMAW or MIG wire that's just left on the machine indefinitely and it's basically caking up with dust grinding dust is hanging off of it because it's a little magnetic that's another one that kind of uh causes a lot of a lot of issues and can cause a problem when it's caught after the fact right and i was i worked at the hanford nuclear site for a couple of years for a contractor that was building the vitrification plant out there. And yeah, storage of welding consumables in that situation because um, it was going to take the nuclear sludge from the Hanford nuclear site that they used to make nuclear weapons out of, blah, blah, blah. The sludge, and they were going to turn it into glass for long-term storage. Well, all, there's just tons and tons of welds on this um, facility. They're still building it today, 20 years later. I think they're getting close to getting some of it done. But anyways, you know, it was nuclear quality, nuclear whatever. And, you know, the electrodes storage was a huge thing. Um, the original packaging had to be projected, you know, the way they stored it, the the rod ovens, the way they kept track of the heat and lot numbers. Everything was just 
um, immaculate in how they dealt with this. I don't know immaculate, but by the by the rule book. And in doing so, there was a lot of uh, you know timekeeping processes. How long has that material been out of the out of the oven or out of the quiver? Or, you know, what's the situation on it? And it, it, sometimes if, if it's just been out too long, you just have to throw it away if you couldn't rebake it or, you know, you, you didn't meet the conditions of the code. So anyways, this is something to be cognizant of if you're doing code work. Like Pete said, if you're out welding on farm equipment or whatever, it's not such a big deal. You're going to be able to, your 7018 is probably going to be all right in the refrigerator with a good 100 watt bulb in there. But for most conditions, in a code related shop, it's, it's not going to get you where you need to be. Correct. And, and I got another story to go along with Gary's is, is humidity plays a big role. I, I, I remember when we were building offshore pipelines in Mobile, we had a client that mandated a maximum temperature that was significantly below the dew point. So I almost had to re put my electrodes in air conditioned rooms to keep them at like 78 degrees to take them out into hundred degree weather with like 99% humidity, hundred percent humidity. And basically they all just became wet with dew. So we would have to take them out of storage, let them warm up in like their box. Uh, this was all MIG wire. So it was in a, we, we had it specially put in a, foil bags uh, for the environment, let it warm up to where it was no longer dew was forming on it, and then we would take it out and put it on the machine. So normally you always want your storage to be warmer than your dew point. Um, that was that was a, a crazy requirement that I, I had to fight in for years. The, the other thing, just so we don't skip over it, shielding gas, and this is one that's really overlooked a lot, um, uh, and this is, uh, either five, three, one, three, I believe, or seven, three, one, three. Um, it mandates, it has to be, uh, the requirements to a five thirty two. um, almost all your gas bottle fillers will, will not give you that cert unless you pay for it. Um, that's. Welding grade gas does not normally come with that cert. Um, like I say, you're always going to get bit by it, but just so you know, if you're on a picky job, make sure beforehand you buy bottles with that cert because that, uh, that has gotten me where I had to then send the bottle out for testing, which was unreasonably expensive. Yeah, something to think about. So, okay, so if we go to low hydrogen electrode storage conditions, so it's going to tell you for low hydrogen conditions, um, electrodes covering conforming to AWS 5.1 and 5.5. So this is your 7018s or your 7018-1s. You know, you, it's got to be um, purchased in hermetically sealed containers or baked by the user in conformance with 5.3.2.4 prior to use. Um, after opening the hermetically sealed electrodes, um, not immediately issued for use, shall be stored in ovens at a temperature of at least 250. I worked at one place we made hydraulic cylinders, and it didn't. It wasn't the end of the world one way or the other, but 
they were they had their ovens set at you know 120 150 something it wasn't very high so um the one to note here is the electrodes shall be rebaked no more than once and electrodes that have been wet shall not be used so if you've got 7018 and somehow it gets wet in the rain or gets splashed on comes in contact with water and gets wet you got to throw them away just pitch them destroy them so the guys can't take them out and stash them in their lunch box or whatever they need to be destroyed so um comments on that next paragraph there pete approved atmospheric time periods um yeah that's basically the this is where i mean there's you can either go through the pain of trying to track everything or you just don't let every welder walk off with 50 pounds of rod um or you used heated quivers it, there, there, there's a lot of ways around the painfulness of, of time periods where just keeping things hot uh, will maintain it or giving people only enough rods to burn within the time period is the easiest way to deal with that situation. Uh, and, and the other thing I want to throw out there is find out from the manufacturer the rod, what they specify, because this, this gives you a range for things, but... The manufacturer's probably been dealing with this for people leaving their rods out for a while. They've probably figured out what temperatures work better for their flux uh, combination uh, chemistry versus this is a generic approach. Right. And, you know, a lot of this gets back to maybe on a later date we'll have to talk about have a full-blown adventure and conversation about filler metal control programs or talking about filler metal control and how that works you know keeping track of filler metal and how to dish it out that might be something we address at a later date but that definitely ties into this i've worked at you know a lot of jobs where you know filler metal control that you had a you had a a rod rod room and you had guys in there that like he, pete was saying you only got five or six rods so they knew you weren't going to have them out there for six hours you were going to have to come back and get some more rod in about an hour it's kind of yeah. painful for the welder but it ensures that you know you don't have this 7018 or 8018 or some kind of low hydrogen electrode sitting out in a i'm out of houston area it's humid as hell down here so you don't want you know those high uh high tensile strength, low hydrogen electrodes sitting out in the humidity for very long in the middle of July or whatever month down here where it's, you, you might be able to get away with it a little longer in somewhere like central Arizona or central Washington or Idaho or somewhere, but you know, East coast or the Southeast, it's a different story. I can say in Albuquerque, it's pretty dry. You yeah. You probably get away a little longer. Which it goes the other way going that way. I've heard stories of, uh, Worked with a guy who said they were on a job in the 6010 they were using got too dry, so you'd have to wipe it with a wet rag before you'd weld with it to get some moisture back into it because 6010 yes. is is a is basically wood chips and paper glued to a piece of coat hanger. So consequently, you're supposed to have some moisture in that stuff, and if you put that stuff in the oven or if you're in a really dry climate like Albuquerque or Phoenix, you're going to have issues. 
Yeah, uh, I remember a buddy of mine told me they were welding with those in in the desert in Oman, and they would dunk them in a bucket of water before having to use them. Kind of crazy yeah. to go with the reverse. Yeah, you get taught, hey, we you know, we want to keep the 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 hydrogen content of our filler metal down, down, down. But then you go to the you know the cellulose based electrodes, and if you're in Oman or Libya or you know Phoenix area, it's the other way around. Um, do we need to touch on alternative atmospheric time periods established I, by tests? Or are we good? I think we're good. I think, I mean, that is something that you, you discuss with your manufacturer and you see what they've done. Um, I have actually done that test and it is not cheap, uh, to do it. There, there, there is quite a bit of pain involved. So I would, um, I would suggest not going down that road unless your filamental manufacturer has proven data that just says, oh, you can do X, Y, Z instead of ABC. So there's a baking electrodes. This is one where things can go sideways and people get, uh, it, it, this can open up just cans of worms. So 5324, which I'm thinking is 7324 in the 2020. Exactly. Baking electrodes, electrodes exposed to the atmosphere for periods greater than those allowed in table 5.1 shall be baked. So then it gives you the criteria for baking these. Um, you know, it tells you shall be baked for at least one hour and at a temperature between, you know, 700 and 800. And then there's another one, um, a low hydrogen coverings. Okay, 5.1. If it's AWS 5.1, there's one set of criteria that, you know, two hours and then 5.5, AWS 5.5, which is the other low hydrogen electrodes. It gives you a different criteria. Um, so, Gary, ahead. have you ever thought of, uh, um, and, and I asked this question a long time ago when I was, I was first starting out. I was like, why do I have to bake these things so hot? I mean, water boils at 212 Fahrenheit or 100 degrees C. And... I, I asked this question. I'm like, why do we have to have it so hot? Is it, I mean, to make sure that the center of the, if you put, like, if you have a 500 pound rod oven and you got, I mean, a couple hundred pounds of rod and there's a, to get to the center, it gets warm enough. Uh, that's where the time comes in. But what was explained to me is to break the water molecule off of some of these fluxes. Uh, the energy of activation is much higher than what you get at 212 or 100 degrees C. So that's why it has to be so much hotter. Um, that was just a little tidbit of information I learned early in my career was why the temperatures have to be so much higher. No, and that makes sense. I guess to me it would it would kind of fall in there with like why concrete kilns are so hot. You really got to get those things super that Portland cement super hot to bake out all the water or get everything done that you need to get done. So no, that makes sense to me. I don't, I don't know the chemistry behind it, but I can definitely buy into that. Um, low hydrogen electrodes, uh, five, three, two, five, low hydrogen electrode restrictions for ASTM a five fourteen or five seventeen. Before we go Pete into this one, do you want to talk about, why is 514 and 517 so special? I mean, it's just numbers here, right? 514, 517. 
What could oh. be so difficult about welding this stuff? What's the difference between 514 and 517 and let's say another run of the mill, the run of the mill carbon steels like A36 or materials like that? Well, these are uh, also referred to a lot of times as T1s. Um, these are where we start to get into high strength steels. Uh, as we see glancing through this section, all of a sudden you see E90. Uh, everything else that we've been talking about is E70 um, or maybe AE80. So we're, we're now into the, the realm of the maximum strength of what this code addresses, which is 100 KSI strength steels. And that is now what we are playing with. So these are materials that actually, when people talk about, I've never seen hydrogen cracking. Well, if, if you've only played in 50 KSI steel range, you need an awful lot of hydrogen, like, to, to make that crack. Um, you go to these A514s, um, all of a sudden we have something that doesn't take nearly as much to crack as your your lower strain steels. And these materials are quenched and tempered. So when they're made, they come out, they're hot, they quench them to get, you know, martensite to form. Well, that material is that martensitic microstructure is way too hard to be of any use. So then they'll give it a supplementary heat treatment. Well, they'll bring it back up to a tempering temperature and kind of uh, soften it up and give it a more flexible. You're still got some hardness in there, but you've got the material is soft enough and ductile enough that it's not going to shatter like a glass. So that's what we're talking about with these um, these two materials. And like Pete said, it's a T1. They're high-strength structurals. You'll see them on um, mining equipment a lot of times, heavy equipment, something that can take a beating, and you still you want it light and strong, but it's um, still got to be able to take a beating. So like you uh, said, the tensile strength on these filler materials is in the 90s or above. So a quick uh, tidbit on this, uh, a little story. So these materials were made by you, or they're, they're the forerunners were made by U.S. Steel, and uh, they wanted to prove out that they were acceptable for use. Um, so U.S. Steel with uh, Chicago Bridge and Iron um, got together, and they made some pressure vessels, and they, I believe they filled them with water, and they pressurized them up. And I think a lot of times they were chilled at different temperatures and they took giant steel ingots and they dropped them from a crane at like, I don't know, like a hundred feet tall or something to smash these pressure vessels to show that the steel was ductile and that the welds were good. It's kind of crazy. Oh, wow. That is crazy. That'd be worth paying to see to watch that one. So, in this one, it's just telling us, um, you know, when you're welding with these materials, you know, it's it's got to be furnished in um, hermetically sealed containers, uh, lower tensile strengths, whether container or otherwise. The electrode shall be baked for a minimum, and it gets back to baking temperatures. But you really got to be careful with these materials um, when welding them. And it's just getting you lined out on the restrictions for these materials, the low hydrogen electrodes. Um, the next, uh, paragraph covers, um, seal, uh, submerged arc welding electrodes and fluxes. 
not too much to that that I can throw in there. You know, read the directions. I've done a little bit of uh, submerged arc, but generally you just, you're going to have a wire and a flux combination. And as long as you follow those directions, you shouldn't get into too much trouble. Do you have anything to contribute to that, Pete, on the submerged so, arc? So we can look at, I mean, submerged arc is kind of like, I mean, it's, we, we've now the flux, the f for solid wire submerged arc, the flux is now divorced, unlike, I guess, unlike, let's say, like a, a SMAW stick rod. Um, so the, fl the flux for submerged arc, you have to also worry about uh, and treat it similar to a, uh, or it's the same thought process. The, where, where people get into problems with uh, submerged arc fluxes is you want to, you want to reclaim your flux. I mean, you, you don't consume all the flux whenever you use it. Flux is expensive, so you either vacuum it back up, you use a broom and a dustpan, and a lot of people just dump it back in the hopper. Well, you really need to clean that stuff. It needs to get uh, kind of filtered out, get out the, 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 the metal filings. Definitely, I mean, if it gets contaminated with dirt, just chunk it. And you also need to make sure you rotate in quantities of fresh flux because you do lose things uh, during the whole uh, welding and then recycling process. But basically if you approach it with a thought process of, I got to maintain temperature on this because the flux may, uh, be hermetic. Uh, there's two different kinds. There's a fused flux and then, a, uh, non fused flux. And there's advantages and disadvantages that we go into on a later, a later, uh, discussion, but just be wary of it. Keep it clean. It's, uh, and it's always best to stay within the same manufacturer. Um, otherwise, it's all on you if you kind of run the problems and you're using flux from company A and wire from company Z. Yeah, Try to you, use them all from the same. Yeah, if you're going to buy, if you're going to go, like he said, you know, if you're going to get um, like Lincoln Electric. Lincoln Electric's got some pretty good stuff out there that I've used in the past. Um, couple, three different stops along my professional career, they'll get you dialed in. Okay, use this wire with this flux, you're good to go. And when Pete was talking about the flux is divorced, um, submerged arc welding is basically welding with a coat hanger and kitty litter. That's what it looks like for those of you that have never been around it. It's You got big spools of wire that are about the size of a coat hanger wire you know, 50 or 100 pound spools, or maybe it's even coming in drums. And then you've got this flux and there's very different variations, but it comes in 55 pound bags or 50 pound pails. And it looks like kitty litter or floor dry that you'd use to wipe up antifreeze or spilt transmission fluid off the floor. And that's what the process looks like. And you can't see anything under that process. So that's what he was talking about when they're divorced. And you do need to you know, keep track of your flux and um, make sure people aren't, you know, putting cigarettes out in it and it, your flux isn't, you know, somewhere where it's going to accumulate a lot of moisture or water or things like that. So there is quite a bit to it. Um, electrode flux combination requirements. Uh, we can go over that. Condition of flux. Pete pretty much covered that. It tells you, you know, um, flux used for submerged arc welding shall be dry and free of contaminated from dirt, mill scale, or other foreign, foreign material. 
All flux shall be purchased in packages that can be stored under normal conditions for at least six months without such storage affecting its welding characteristics or property. So, you know, you got to be a grown up about getting this stuff and being able to store it. You can't store it in the mud. You don't want to store it in the rain. Um, damaged packages, you know, need to be discarded. So, and peak covered flux reclamation here. Um, crushed slag may be used. I've never been involved with crushed slag being used, but I, I've only dealt with it once, Gary. And either my, if you're going to use crushed slag or reground flux, not just reclaimed flux, but this is where, so whatever you, whatever you recycle your flux, not all of it melts. A lot of it doesn't melt. And that's what I'm talking about recycling the the part that solidifies people will take that and grind it up back in the flux and resell it i would say if you want to go down that road you need to become a sophisticated individual to know what you're getting into it can be done but you need to understand that you're you're greatly on your own for figuring out what is going on in your weld pool yeah to kind of not to get too far off on the um, into the weeds on metallurgy and submerged arc and whatnot. But there's a lot of weird things. And I don't know weird is what a, a lot of things happen differently in the mechanics of the weld pool, the weld chemistry, just the way things happen in submerged arc welding as compared with um, stick welding, you know, sh shielded metal arc welding, shielded metal arc welding, there's a lot of things that you don't really have to worry about as much in regards to, you know, the first pass is weld chemistry and the second and the third as compared with like submerged arc. There's just some things that happen there chemistry wise. And I can't, I'm not an expert on it. I just know that it happens. And I know that when you're dealing with it and you start doing qualifications, like Pete said, you're kind of on your own or you better be a very sophisticated individual. If you're going into this crushed slag thing, comments, Pete? Um, no, uh, but but we did uh, somehow somehow Gary, we completely glossed over when we did the SMAW uh, broad storage oven. Is that's not where you heat up your lunch? Somehow we forgot about that. Yeah, we forgot to touch on that one. Yes, don't heat your beans up in there, and if you do, poke a hole in the cans so they don't explode. No, one place I, side note story, one place I worked back in the day in Kentucky, they had been a really big company that got bought out, parted out, blah, blah, blah. So one part of the company was a forge shop, forgings. They did forgings for axles for John Deere and Caterpillar and stuff like that, right? Well, and then I worked in the engineered products division or whatever. So my boss is like, I needed a, a, a rod, another rod oven for the welding side. And he's like, well, go get one back from the forging side. There's a bunch back there. So I go back there and look in the forging department. And they don't do any welding in the forging department. Well, it was all these guys using them as ovens to heat up their lunches. And I was like, <laughs> I told my boss, I said, the company can shell out 500 bucks and get me a new oven. I'm not going and taking those guys lunch, lunch cooking deals because they're going to, they're going to freaking get. Um, angry. They're gonna key my rig or something. I'm not. It ain't worth it. Just 
this is a multi-billion or million dollar operation. They can shell out the 582 bucks and get me a new damn oven. I'm not going and stealing those guys' lunch cooking ovens. Exactly. Full of TV dinners and whatnot. So, okay, moving on to 5.3.4. Um, gas metal arc and flux welding or flux core arc welding electrodes. The electrodes for gas metal arc welding and flux core arc welding shall conform to the requirements of the following. So it gives a whole list of requirements. And it pretty much ends there. Pete, so, why do we not worry so much about GMAW and FCAW electrodes like we do stick and subarc? Well, let me. I'll, I think we need to break it up because th there, there, there should be a little more guidance on one of those. But let's just look at GMAW and or MIG and GTAW uh, TIG welding. Generally, they're solid electrodes, 99% of the time. They're, they're solid. There's, uh, we're not talking about metal core, but we're talking about solid, solid electrodes, except for the rust that can form on the outside that can then trap moisture. You're basically, the amount of hydrogen that's in them is the amount of hydrogen that was in them when the, when the, when the consumable was made. Uh, you're looking at, I mean, uh, a one to a two, uh, milligrams of hydrogen per hundred uh but you don't you don't have that problem uh if, if the rod's rusty or the or the the wire's rusty i mean you're, you're you should probably chunk it um that's why i they don't they don't really go into it as much uh flux core uh flux cores evolved uh, now we have seamless uh, uh electrode uh, tubes that the uh, flux is stuffed in so that's a lot easier to deal with. But what what I always dealt with uh, or preached to uh, all all of my welders was with flux core. Uh, if we're not going to use it for a couple days, take it out of the machine, or actually all of those, uh, we take them out of the machine and try to put them up. Um, but on the flux core, run out a couple feet, cut it off, and especially if it's a two a tubeless or a, a seamless. Uh, type uh type wire it can only come in from two ends and that's a little hole for it to get in so cutting off a few feet took care of any weldability problems yeah and generally like pete's saying with the hard wire you know the solid i gotta cut that out check, check, check. <laughs> um and like pete was saying with the hard wire the solid wires there's no hydrogen in it. So unless you've got contamination from, you know, an external source like uh, a grease and oil, rust, something like that, you're probably not going to have hydrogen-induced cracking or cracking-related issues with the gas metal arc welding. Flux core, I've had situations in the past where I had flux core issues with materials, but it ended up being the whole batch. You know, we had, um, I worked for an outfit and we did a lot of, uh, it was a foundry. So, you know, you'd, you'd end up, foundries, I think it's what, 3% or 4%. So if you're building all these castings, these huge castings, so you, uh, you know, hundreds of tons or a few tons of material. So you order enough filler material for like 4% of this, the, the weight of your castings is kind of how it goes. So you get a pallet of this weld material. Well, the one time the guy kept getting porosity and porosity and cracking and having issues. Well, we 
changed out the wire and went to, we, we changed out like five different boxes of this stuff. And I went through every other variable that I could think of that could give me those issues. And then I ordered some material from a competitor that had the same, you know, material designation and I didn't have the issues. So it ended up being this one batch of stuff was just bad. So that's one thing that, and I'm not saying that's going to be every time, but a lot of times with flux core, you know, it might just be the whole batch is contaminated. Something went wrong when they were making the um, filler material. Something was wrong with the flux, whatever. So that's something to think about. It's not every time, but it can happen. So our next thing you uh, you can get also, Gary, if you want, uh, they have low temperature ovens for actually both of these that are like at 100 or 125. And you can put spools in and uh, TIG rods in if you really want to be, oh, keep my stuff all nice and shiny and nice and warm. And it is possible to buy them. Yeah, that's a route you can go. Um, gas tungsten arc welding. There's a couple of items listed in there on tungsten electrodes and the filler metal, but it's pretty short. It's next up. And I don't have much to say about these two processes cause I've never dealt with them. I've never seen them other than, you know, YouTube videos and read about them, but electro slag welding and electro gas welding processes. I will say, Gary, if you ever get the chance to use them, it's one of the fastest ways to put metal down. Yeah, I know uh, it's got really high deposition rates, but I'm, I'm, have you dealt with them much, Pete? Uh, not, I haven't dealt with them a lot, but I have uh, seen them in person. Um, electro slag, uh, I've seen for welding up heavy flanges of girders. And it was basically, uh, it was, uh, I think, two wires going into the molten pool at once, and it was traveling about an inch a minute doing a full penetration weld. Uh, Electrogas, it it gets seen, it, or it sees its use a lot um, in the building of big tanks, and it's on the vertical weld seam. That's where you can see uh, electrogas used. But I, I haven't really dealt a lot with it. Um, I'm assuming if you're if you're getting into uh, electro gas or electro slag, I I hope it's a little farther into your career where you're a little more uh, uh, up on your game. Uh, electro slag uses a flux; you need to keep it dry. It also sometimes has consum uh, consumable guide tubes. Um, kind of treat you need to treat those just as an electrode because they get melted into the weld pool as well. Um, Electrogas, by its name, it deals with gas instead. Um, so the the biggest problem on these is starts and stops. Uh, sometimes they can be really hard to pull out of. But other than that, these welds basically start up. And once you start, you just keep going into the welds done all the way. So, Yeah, and from what I'm reading in this part of the code, it's basically talking about a lot of the stuff we've touched on you know condition of the flux and weld starts and stops and preheating and you know odds are that if you're using these processes you're you're probably mid or late career they're probably not going to throw the rookies into this process i would think so i, I would i would hope not but there there's a, a good story of why why a lot of people don't know about as much about electro slag is um since it's, it's mainly used for welding up heavy parts like bridge girders well, uh, 
there's a there's a bridge uh, in um, I think it's the I seventy nine in Pittsburgh that had a huge crack and it got blamed on electro slag that that was the cause of it poor toughness etc. And so there was a big halt. Like you couldn't build any bridges in the United States with electro slag. Um, well, it was really kind of what what I from memory is it was kind of one of those midnight repairs with a stick rod that is was actually what caused the 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 failure in the first place. But I think it was like a twelve inch twelve or excuse me a twelve foot long crack or something like that. It was huge. Oh wow. So, yeah, and I'm sure if you're going down that road, um, contact the manufacturers and there's people out there with some pretty strong technical knowledge that can probably steer you in a better direction than Pete and I can. 5.5 WPS variables. The welding variables shall be in conformance with a written WPS. We've covered this before. You got to write it down, guys. You got to act like grownups if you're doing code work. Each pass will have a complete fusion with the adjacent base metal and such that there will be no depressions or undue undercutting at the toe of the weld. Excessive concavity in the initial passes shall be avoided to prevent cracking in the root joints under restraint. All welders and welding operators and tack welders shall be informed in the proper use of the WPS and the Applicable WPS shall be readily available and shall be followed during the performance of welding. So that's telling you, you got to show the welders the WPS. You got to let them know what's going on. You can't just hand them a stack of filler metal and send them out to weld. And if the welder wants to look at the WPS, you got to let them look at it. You can't just be a fly night, fly by night outfit. Correct. And it's also, um, I, I remember that this paragraph has came up in, um, in in committee for discussion, but it's like because some of it's uh, kind of weird on how it's it's been put here, where it talks about variables, but then it also talks about I mean quality of the weld in there and excessive concavity of 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 the, like we we're saying of the excessive concavity of the initial pass shall be avoided. Um, I mean, what this is all going after is we have to have variables on the on the written WPS, and these variables have to produce decent looking welds without cracks. That's uh, what this uh, this uh, paragraph here says. And um, I was part of one group that we tried wordsmithing it around, but it it didn't it didn't happen. You know, and it's it's all right there. It's just telling you. You got to act like grownups. I know a lot of times that I boil this down and throw it into slang terms, but that's what it's telling you. You know, you have to be professionals about this. And these are these are the expectations that you should live up to if you're going to be doing code related work. So you, you, you and maybe I, I think a lot of this is in there. This is my worldview, because you might start out as a welding outfit doing a certain type of work and you're not working to a code. And then at some point somebody says, Hey, Fred's welding and barbecue down the street. They, they weld, let's get them to do this. It's just gotta be to D 1.1. Well, then this Fred's welding and barbecue has to start doing code work now. And this is letting them know, Hey, these are the things that you need to follow. These are our expectations. If you're going to be doing code work. Yep. So, Oh, Pete's favorite preheat and interpass temperatures. Five point oh, yes. six. 
Run with so, it, B. So it's a seven six in the new uh, in the twenty twenty, and what what this is saying is base metals have to be preheated if the temperature is too low. Uh, if you're if you're in Houston, Texas, uh, or Albuquerque during the middle of summer, um, unless you got a really thick item, um, you may not have to preheat at all, and you have to go away. What's listed on WPS. And normally the double PS will pull that either from a qualification or it'll pull it from uh, one of the tables in the, uh, that exists in the book. So if it's not hot enough, you need to make it hot enough. It doesn't tell you how to do it. Uh, so you can preheat it by, I mean, different fuel gases, uh, propane, uh, oxy fuel would probably be a little... I would say a little on the expensive side and definitely don't want to use a cutting torch for it. You could use resistance heating and ducting uh, uh, heating. Um, but for preheat is before we start welding. So before we strike an arc is that is your preheat. Interpass is as soon as we've started welding. And you take your interpass temperature or let's start your preheat is equal to the thickness of the thickest part or at least three inches in all directions from the point of welding. Um, I've been in many arguments on that, that that may be slightly conservative or overly conservative on some things. Uh, but that is what the code currently says. Uh, there is a huge, well, there, there's a decent uh, write-up in the commentary about this as well. But preheat, you take before you strike the arc, in all directions. So if you had, let's say, a six-inch thick plate that you were welding to a one-inch thick plate, you're being driven by the thickness of the thickest part, which would be that real thick plate that you have to measure in all directions, including the Z direction, the through thickness measuring it on the backside. Uh, interpass is after welding has started, and you take the interpass... Uh, generally, it, it it doesn't tell you exactly where to take interpass, but a normal rule is within about an inch of wherever you're going to start your arc at. Um, so if you're welding on a 10-foot-long part, if you were to check your interpass where you just broke the arc, your temperature could be 700 degrees. But where you started from, it could be down to 150. And if you're on a four inch thick plate that requires 250 degrees minimum preheat, you would have to preheat back at the beginning, uh, again, to heat it back up. So that is, uh, that's the differences between uh, preheat and interpass temperature. Uh, usually there's a, for preheat, there's a minimum uh, and, or, and then a maximum for interpass. There could also be a maximum for preheat as well. You don't want to sit there and with a big rosebud and heat it up till the thing turns cherry red. That is uh, definitely in in excess of whatever uh, preheat would be. Right, and there's a lot of materials that you can damage. You know, if you're run-of-the-mill carbon steels. You're probably not going to do too much damage. But if you get them, like Pete said, red hot, like you're going to hit that thing with a hammer and make horseshoes out of it or you know, you're, you're, you've gone too far. You're probably going to damage that material. And it, it, especially when you get to materials that 
you know, have a higher carbon content or a higher tensile strength, you've got to be careful with what you're doing with these materials because you can damage the microstructure. You can do things to the heat affected zone. There's just a, a, a whole slew of things that you can do wrong to a material if you get it too hot in the preheat phase or also in the inner pass temperature phase. So that being said, I think you just basically answered uh, the next one there, heat input control for quenching tempered steels, or at least part of it anyway there, Gary. Right, and that's what we're talking about, the quenching tempered steels. And you really need to be careful with these guys. You know, this is not, uh, I just can't stress enough that if you're going to deal with quenched and tempered steels, do your homework, read some stuff. Go to a website for the people that make this stuff. There's a lot of information out there on the internet. You know, go out there and do some research and find things. I, 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 and I'm not going to lie to you. That's the first thing that I do. If there's a material that I haven't run across or dealt with before or I need to brush up, I, st I go on to Google. All right, ASTM A514, how do you weld this stuff? Go to the manufacturer's um, information. Dig around in a couple of AWS books. Um, Lincoln Electric's got some really good books. We'll have to do a a library version where of this podcast where we talk about some of the books and maybe find an information, but that's exactly. basically what Pete and I do. If we're going to deal with something we've never dealt with, that's the key. I don't commit it to memory. I kind of do, but I'll, I'll go dig around on the internet and find what I'm welding and how to weld it. And, you know, and then put together a little cheat sheet on it and then put my uh, weld procedures together or talk to the welders. Okay, this is what this stuff is. This is how we're going to address this problem. But that's what I would say for, you know, quenched and tempered steels. Correct. So I, I guess, uh, so we, we uh, or you touched on the keeping it not uh, overheating it because you lose the microstructure. Well, the same thing can also come in from your heat input from your electrical arc. And you need to make sure that your elect that your heat input is the higher your heat input, the colder the material has to be, and vice versa. If you have a very low heat input weld, you need a higher preheat interpass temperature, and that that is that is definitely what it uh, what is discussing there. Right, and when we're talking about with materials like this, you're probably not you you want to keep your heat input low, so that means a faster travel speed, generally. You don't want big wide wash passes on this stuff. You, you, so you want to keep it, you know, your your inner pass temperatures low. So I mean, there's some techniques that you, you know, can look up and figure out, but that's generally what you're trying to accomplish there. Correct. Right? All right. Yep. All right. Let's look at um, stress relief, heat treatment. There's a bunch of material in here. Do you? How deep do you want to go into this, Pete? Well, I, I haven't done much stress relief in D11. I've done it to, you know, pressure vessel codes and other situations. So, well, um, so I, I can, I'll go over it real quick. One is the uh, temperatures are, are limited. And it, you mainly, I have only done it in D11 for big parts that were going to get machined. I think uh, it was on a bascule bridge and we had, I think it was like eight inch thick base plate welded to 
like a 12 inch uh, piece of plate. And I want to say that it was like the gear was going to be six feet tall and get uh, big teeth machined out of it. And it had, I don't think it was a full pen weld, but I think it was, I mean, extremely healthy parcel joint. I mean, something probably like beveled like three or four inches on either side. And they didn't want it to move while they were machining it. So after it was welded, the whole thing was uh, stress relieved. And you're, you're doing it more for dimensional changes, not really as much for microstructure changes like a lot of times in um, uh, some steels you may do it to actually to really soften them here you're, what you're trying to do is get out and release stresses um, there that's there, there there's a lot of if you do it following this cookbook uh, of what they have you should be okay there's a lot of steels that are not recommended for post-fall heat treat uh, and those are like our 514s 517s all of our, our quenched and tempered steels. There, there, there's a laundry list of here of materials that you don't want to postal heat treat because you will destroy the microstructure that gives the steel its strength. Um, I think that's, uh, I think the best way to uh, to address that. Yeah, and like I said, I've done stress relief on, you know, pressure vessel components and materials like that, but. You know, and most of it's just following, like Pete said, you follow the recipe here. And generally on structural components, you don't see too much stress relief. It's not like you're um, dealing with a, you know, a, a 9018, you know, high carbon steam line and some kind of ASME boiler and pressure vessel type situation or power piping or something like that. Generally, your structural steels, you're not going to go down that road. But if you do have to, they've got you, you some provisions here and some requirements and a recipe that you need to follow to get you where you need to go. Once again, before you dive into this, if you are a rookie and you get thrown to the wolves, just read. Do some reading. Take an extra hour or two. Put together what you're going to do. And, you know, generally things will come out. Um you know, and it, Pete said here, steel's not recommended for post-weld heat treat. Um, stress relieving of weldments of ASTM A514, 517, A109, grades HPS, 100W, and ASTM A10 or 710 steels is not generally recommended. It's just telling you flat out, don't stress relieve this stuff. It's not going to come out good. You're going to soften that the if you stress relieve that material, you're going to change the microstructure significantly enough in that weld material that it's not going to be anything close to what the base material started out as. It's going to turn to mush or something. So it's not going to give you the mechanical properties you're looking for. So that's don't why they give you a red flag there and say, don't do this. Do not do this. You know, and there's a whole preamble there telling you don't post weld stress relieve this stuff just leave it alone um i think we beat that horse a couple times too many so let's move on to backing um steel backing shall conform to the following requirements um fusion groove welds made with steel backing shall have the weld thoroughly fused to the backing if you're going to use backing you got to weld to it you can't have it unfused full length backing Anything else in here, Pete, that you think we need to cover with backing? Um, 
No, I mean, uh, I mean, the reason that uh, AWS has a whole lot of information here on backing is um, it's generally either you back, you use backing or you back gouge, uh, or unless you qualify an open route. So that's the reason why there's a lot of information here on it. Is um, there's a lot of joint designs that that have the backing in here. Um, they they have some. Uh, Or they used to actually, I think, have some backing thicknesses that were minimums, uh, but I believe that's been taken out. Uh, and that was basically so you didn't blow through your backing. So don't use like an eighth inch thick backing when you're sitting there subarcing at 500 amps because you'll blow right through. So you need to prevent melt through. And this basically is like a weld. It's a weld quality uh, kind, of, kind of issue. Um, cyclically loaded. Uh, things change uh, once things go from... Uh, static to cyclic and a lot sometimes you may have to remove your backing as opposed to leaving it in place uh, that's because uh, on both sides of the root of where you tie into your backing you have a a perfect notch uh, that's formed there and that's why on cyclically loaded structures you may have to remove it and that that will that's subject to uh, what that should be on the drawings as specified by the engineer or in um, the specifications associated with the project, right? And it gives you a couple couple of examples there. You know, some wording on do this, don't do that. That you know you can read through and figure out on backing welds. Um, Five ten welding and cutting equipment. This is kind of this is an interesting one. It's just a short one, but all welding and thermal cutting equipment shall be so designed and manufactured and shall be in such condition as to enable designated personnel to follow procedures and attain the results described elsewhere in the code. So to me, this one is telling whoever's manufacturing it, you gotta have equipment that works. You gotta have grown up equipment. You can't just have old cobbled together welding equipment that you know that the oh how do we how do you know this is 110 amps well it's it's on that notch right over there we know no you got to have you got to have you got to if you're going to swim in this pool you got to play like grown-ups and that's what this is telling you you know if i come into a shop and i'm doing the cwi or third-party inspection or you know the owner's engineer or whatever capacity and i go in there and the cutting and welding equipment looks like you know, something that you bought at a used bake sale. I didn't even say garage sale. I said bake sale. <laughs> you know, you bought at the bake sale. Yeah, I'm probably going to throw up a red flag and be like, no, you, you need to rectify this situation. Your welders can't follow the, um, the WPSs. There's no, you know, amperage, voltage, wire feed speed, none of that. How do I know that they're welding to my WPSs? So thoughts, Pete? Correct. No, I think that that's generally it. I mean, it's kind of a uh, a very simplistic catch-all kind of uh, kind of statement. Um, there there is a lot of ambiguity to it and a lot of gray area. Um, I know a lot of places do. They have a little notch or a little mark or whatnot to say, "Hey, that's 110 amps," and that's what we use for our let's say one eighth rod or or uh, something like that. But we know it's that way because here we use this meter over here to check it. Well, okay, hey, we've we've had a thought process and we've worked through it. Um, but it's basically saying keep your equipment in good working order. 
yeah, you're doing code related work, you know, follow the rules. Welding environment. You want to go on with uh, maximum wind velocity, Pete? Yeah, five miles an hour. How fast is five miles an hour? That that has came up, unfortunately, more times than uh, than I care to think about it. Uh, and basically, if your smoke isn't coming straight up, pretty much, you need to look at doing something. Um, I, I, it's, it's been, uh, it's been a problem, uh, where just not mainly whenever you have, you're welding in the field and you don't want to erect any kind of walls or because of your time or you don't have them, you don't have a sheet of plywood or, uh, you can't build some kind of little hooch or welding shelter that that's where that comes into. And the argument has been on, well, how fast is five miles an hour? Um, and it's been dealt with many ways, but you just build something that you can keep the wind off of your consumable so you don't blow your shielding gas away. All of those processes listed basically use gas. Uh, they don't use a flux. So that's where – or the flux core is in combination with gas. Um, so one of the common um, – for flux cord arc welding gas, it would be like – a trade name would be dual shield or something like that. Correct. Where you're using gas in a, in, um, in, oh, I can't think of the word. You're using a gas with the flux cord, um, filler material. Um, when I worked in Iowa, this little hydraulic cylinder place that no longer exists, and it wasn't a little, but we'd have problems with the gas metal arc welding in the spring of every year. When they'd open up the, it started getting hot and humid in Iowa. So they'd open up the doors at the end of the building and it'd create this wind tunnel. Well, for the machining and everything else in there, it didn't matter. But for the gas metal arc welding and what little TIG welding we did, man, it would blow that shielding gas away. And we'd have all kinds of porosity issues for about three weeks before we finally got things, you know, rearranged and shielded and doors closed or you know rectify the situation and this exactly. is meant for you know a lot of this is meant for if you're going to be welding in the middle of western north dakota you know up in the bakken oil fields or whatever there's a lot of wind out there you're probably not going to be using gas metal arc or tig out in the middle of that stuff stick is probably a better option as is um, just straight up self-shielded flux core arc welding. So, correct. Um, minimum ambient temperatures. Welding shall not be done when the ambient temperature is lower than zero degrees F minus 20 C. That's generally a pretty good idea. When surfaces are wet or exposed to rain, snow, or high wind velocities, or when welding personnel are exposed to inclement conditions means when the weather's really cruddy you got to build something you got to build a hooch you got to build some kind of makeshift building structure to keep the water off or at least get your temperature that you're welding up above zero degrees fahrenheit correct i mean so not not only is it we don't want to be making welds <laughs> while, while it's raining it, it's not only just for a 
better weld quality, but it's also if 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 you put people in inclement conditions, it's also harder for them to do quality work. So I, I would say that this is generally a twofold statement. Uh, one is quality of weld. The other one is being able to help put the welder set them up for or her for success. That's the uh, so I think there's there's two parts to that one. Yeah, and like Pete was saying, yeah, it's you're you're trying to set your people up for success. You don't want them out there knee deep in mud trying to weld or you know the frozen tundra of Western North Dakota. I'm a Montana guy. I grew up there, so I always got to kind of get in a shot on Eastern Montana and Western North Dakota, how windy it is. So, but it's the it's the truth. Not that Western Montana is some kind of tropical environment, but any of that any of that tier of northern states, North Dakota, Montana, Minnesota, or Canada, these are the, these are going to come into play. You're probably not going to have to worry about zero degrees F, you know in the Southeast states or Texas or, you know, situations like that geographically. No, but, uh, uh, I mean, I grew up in South Texas and, uh, I definitely know about having to weld on, uh, shrimp boats and stuff, uh, in, uh, very wet, uh, environments, um, and wind along the coast. So none of those were fun. No, no. And it's a different, you, you got a different, situation there which is covered in wet or exposed to rain or high wind velocity so you can get two or three of those all at once off right there so definitely every there's a lot of you might not be dealing with the frozen cold but there's the wet and the wind velocities that you've got to deal with um conformance with design 512 size and lengths of weld shall be no less than those specified by design requirements and the detailed drawings, uh, location of welds shall not be changed without the approval of the engineer. It's telling you, you can't make this up and change things without the engineer signing off. So you got to follow the design. Correct. And the, the, those tables that they mentioned do give you some, a little bit of leeway. You got to look at the table, read the table and 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 apply it minimum fillet weld sizes is 513 um the minimum fillet weld size except for fillet welds used to reinforce groove welds shall be as shown in table 5.7 the minimum fillet weld size shall apply in all cases unless the design drawing specify welds of a larger size so make sure that you put in the minimum fillet weld size Correct. Now, this this is one that um, should also be looked at from the reverse. So the code talks about a minimum fillet weld size, but you should also be wary of maximum fillet weld sizes, especially if you have things that move or something that gets put into an area and all of a sudden the fillet weld is too big for the part to now go in because of clearance issues uh, and also just cost of overwelding uh, and possible distortion as well so the code has a minimum but as a good fabricator we should also probably look at having a a good maximum size as well right um 514 preparation of base metal now this is where you can get into all kinds of trouble 
Um, to me, this is just common sense. Um, I, I don't even know how to start. But well, obviously, they've put in, you know, a whole section here because obviously somebody out there in the universe wasn't cleaning things or preparing the base metal. So let's just, I'll just dive in and. You, the, yeah. Wanna... The, this one has a has has a point of contention, and and uh, I, I know some folks have. Uh, have uh, really picked on uh, D11 for one of these, but but you're right. The first part, I mean, general, it just needs to be clean to make a weld. That's the quality requirements. That's uh, a first, real general. I would think easy to understand kind of statement. Um, the the next one is about mill induced surface defects. Uh, a lot of materials made to. Uh, ASTM A6, and there are allowances for defects. Um, so this is talking about what. So if we have like a fin or a crayer, I mean, you can't don't put the weld on base metals that have a problem. Uh, that's pretty easy to understand. I mean, what do you think, Gary? Is that is there, there's nothing? Is there anything complex about that one? No, that's is this comes down to you know educating your welders and then you as an inspector or an engineer or whatever your role in the food chain is, you know, you, you got to be able to understand that, you know, fins, tears, cracks, slag, or other base metal defects. You got to be able to recognize these and realize, okay, we can put in a beautiful weld, but we're welding over substandard material or material that's got a defect in it. We're not accomplishing anything. You're, you're not, you're not getting where you need to go. So you need to understand that, you know, you shall not be placed on these surfaces it means don't do it. If you're welding on crappy base metal, don't stop, figure out your path forward, get a new piece of material or, you know, see if you can repair it and what your situation is for a repair situation. Um, what your path forward is. Yeah, so the, the next one is talking about scalar rust. Okay, I'll be honest. I am a big proponent, proponent of you weld on shiny material, but that's not what the code says. Uh, the So like loose scale or uh, thick rust, it has to get removed. But when it's real thin, now this is all subjective about what is thick and what is thin, uh, can be allowed if it's thin. And it can withstand the vigorous hand wire brushing. That's, uh, I mean, I can see uh, if you have a, I mean, the Hulk out there wire brushing is going to be a lot different than uh, a person that's probably 100 pounds. So, like I said, that's another subjective one. Uh, and, but it, but it allows it unless you're dealing with cyclical loaded structures. And then it's for your flanged webs, all the mill scale has to be gone. And like I said, I'm a, I'm a big proponent of bright and shiny, set you up for success. The more stuff you weld over, the more chances you have of a problem. I mean, I, I know a lot of fluxes are designed to handle some stuff, but the less it has to handle, the better off you are. What do you, what do you think about that one, Gary? Yeah, there's some situations where you know you might be able to get away with it and punch through it but generally you want to have it, it shiny material 
you know, you don't, and don't borrow trouble. I used to have a boss that said, don't borrow trouble. And to me, if you're, if you start welding, making a habit of run, welding over mill scales and rusts and um, material like that, you're, you're just asking for trouble. You're borrowing trouble. So, you know, you're trying to set yourself up for success and a little bit of grinding and um, preparation of the weld metal goes a long ways and the you know that ounce of prevention is a pound of cure type of thing C- correct i i remember when i was first starting out as a welder and and i was the the youngest one there the least experienced one the way we addressed that was give pete a nine inch grinder and let him grind for a couple hours and everything uh that i mean a nine inch grinder makes a lot of things disappear real fast put either a big disc or put a big cup rock on it and the weight of the grinder and you don't have to push down very hard will make a lot of all that disappear bright shiny metal and you're right you're not borrowing trouble i like that gary yeah i'm a storehouse for these useless sayings so um okay so 514.4 foreign materials okay we talked about rust and mill scale 514.4-1, surfaces to be welded and the surfaces adjacent to the weld shall be cleaned to remove excessive quantities of the following. Water, oil, grease, other hydrocarbon-based materials. Welding on surfaces containing residual amounts of foreign materials is permitted provided the quality requirements of this code are met. So what this is telling you is we're dealing with carbon steel. We'd like you to get it as clean as possible, but you don't have to get it as clean as you would if you were welding a duplex stainless steel, a nickel alloy, or let's say a titanium type base metal where you can't have anything. There can be absolutely nothing on those base materials when you start to weld. Whereas this is saying, okay, we're welding with carbon steel. All right, we can. We can punch through the oil or the grease or, you know, the cutting fluid, you know, wipe it off, get it as good as you can. But it doesn't have to be just absolutely um, surgical level of cleanliness. That's what that's telling us. Get it as good as you can and make a good attempt at it. And and also, if you're, if you're welding and all of a sudden you start to see a bunch of porosity in your weld, as the last last sentence says, the, you have to meet the quality requirements. You stop and you figure out what's wrong. I I wish Gary I I would have would have known what conversation brought this into the code. I I don't know uh, what it is to provide some history on it. But what I could easily see is if someone was working on let's say a subart tractor and they got a can of WD-40 to squirt on a bolt and someone cried that all of a sudden that spray drifted five feet and got on the weld area and you can't even see it. I I, I don't know. I'm just making up a story of how this section got into it uh, of where it's quantities that you can't even really see kind of. That's the way I look at this. If you can't really see it, it's probably clean enough. Uh, if you've done a good scrubbing on it, 
Now, granted, if you have all your plate in the yard, you got or like an or in your shop, and you got an overhead crane that leaks oil on it, you need to get a degreaser to make that oil disappear. Don't just weld over it. I I do not think that's what the intent of this is. Uh, to give you free reign to weld over blobs of grease or or big oil stains. It's it's the you're right. It's not surgical clean. It's like, hey, that looks reasonably clean. I don't see an oil sheet on it. I don't see standing water. It looks dry. That's what that is for. Unfortunately, it is subjective. We're human beings, and there are probably those that take it to the extreme of either welding over a pound of grease that just dropped out of the forklift to wanting everything wiped down with 10 acetone wipes with Q-tips. So we're grown-ups. Let's figure it out. Yeah, and then you have yeah, you have to, you you're going to have to use a, a judgment call there. And you're going to have to use your best grown-up judgment and professional judgment and you know, there's because there's a lot of different cutting processes, you know, cutting fluids, you know, like you say, and we're big boy world, like you say, there could be hydraulic fluid and you wiped it off. It doesn't have to be, you know, super clean, you know, to the that you can do surgery on it. But, you know, you've got most of the cutting fluid wiped up or most of the hydraulic fluid from the leaky forklift or whatever. You've got most of it wiped up. It's there's probably some micro level of it there, but yeah, you can weld. And with some of these processes, you're you're probably going to punch through it and burn it off anyways. I say that, and then somebody's going to come back on me. You said we could punch through. No, you're not going to punch through three inches of grease or catch something on fire. You got to use some common sense. Skill of the craft, I think, is what we used to call it at the Hanford site. Um, Sounds good. Uh, Welds, welds are permitted to be made on surfaces with surface protective coatings or anti-spatter compounds, except those that are prohibited, um, provided the quality requirements of this code are met. So this covers anti-spatter compounds that you might use in when you're um, gas metal arc welding or using one of those processes, you know, so you don't want to have spatter on there. Or uh, uh, another big one is uh, weld-through uh, primers. Uh, that's that's another one because if uh, a lot of times things may be pre-blasted and you they put a, a weld-through primer on there but to uh, prevent flash rusting, etc. Uh, my, my biggest thing about this is make sure you're using products that are designed for it. Don't just use like any old paint and say, oh, we can weld through it. Uh, use products that are designed and tested for this application. They exist. They're not expensive. Um, and if you follow directions, if you goop on a whole ton of, of, of either one of them, you're going to have problems. Just skill the craft, Gary. Yeah. And when we definition skill of the craft, that means that the craftsman should have a basic set of knowledge, you know, that is an accepted base knowledge for that craft as a welder or pipe fitter or iron worker that, you know, just common sense. I shouldn't have to tell you this every time that you have learned this. This is just a baseline set of knowledge. 
514.5 mill induced discontinuities. So this, uh, we, we touched on this briefly uh, earlier on, um, on, on these. Basically, they can exist within, uh, there's, there's a level, and uh, this one it's table 7.4, I think the older version is 5.4, and they can be repaired, and they're, if they get to a certain size, you have to report them to the engineer. Uh, one one good way I've seen dealing with this um, was we're welding big uh, plates together for uh, for a web for a girder, and there were issues on one end. Well, it was just flipped around and welded to the other, and the good end was welded, and the other end became the drop. All of a sudden, we didn't have to worry about repairing anything. But there's provisions for how to repair uh, discontinuities. And that, that follows down in the paragraph right below the acceptance criteria where it goes through the size of the uh, defect, how you have to find it by, I mean, the, the applicable ASTM of inspection standard for straight beam UT. Uh, then there's a lot of the percentages for how the material can either be for thickness, for length. And it's basically we need to read through each one of these whenever you have a repair. And I would document what these are to make sure that you fall within uh, the X, Y, Z dimensions uh, for for the indication um, for it. Um, then the next one, Gary, uh, which I'm assuming uh, the old one was uh, 5.14.5.2, the repairs. It talks about how to go through the repair of, of it, joint preparation, material uh, trimming. Um. Yeah, and that's what's listed here is it just gets into the, you know, the repair. My thing, I, I don't know how deep you want to dive into this, but to me, the repair thing is it's a documentation thing. Follow the recipe and then have a systematic way of approaching repairs. I worked it in a situation where we had we had paperwork and what it wasn't we didn't do structural work, we did pipe work and we did some small pressure vessels and tanks. But what the there was a defined, a well-defined repair method. And it was very methodical where you would you know, the welding engineer was the person responsible for calling out the repair. Okay, this, the, the NDE found a repair in this area. Okay, the welding engineer, which was me, would come up with the recipe. There would be like a little packet generated. Okay, you're going to grind out from this point to this point. You're going to do this, 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 and this. You're going to grind it flush, whatever. But there was a very detailed repair methodology that we followed and to me that's probably as important as what is written down here you know you just can't go at repairs in you know a haphazard manner you need to document it that you did it right you know have your documentation that once you got the repair done that you passed nde afterwards it you it's it takes a little bit to get into it but that's pretty much what I got to say on repair. Yeah, I, I would say I think you have a good assessment. Um, when I used to do work for the state of Pennsylvania, they, they actually came up with a like 
pre-approved uh, ways of doing repairs that, that were common for base metals on heavy sections. And it was follow the recipe, document uh, document what it was, document what you did, document the end outcome. And that's basically what it comes out to um, for that. And I think uh, – I'm not sure if we need to go much more into it in, unless someone had a really good uh, – repair situation uh, that they wanted to send in that we could kind of talk about for mill induced discontinuities but i think that's uh i don't know if we need to beat that one anymore gary no i think we pretty much hit that one so that gets us out of repairs how about re-entrant corners you want to run with that one uh do we is is uh is that what's next in the 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 2015 or do we go in the joint preparation oh all right i skipped over that Let's back up and hit joint preparation. Run with joint pep preparation then. Okay, so joint preparation. This is how are we making our bevel. And it gives a laundry list of what you can do. I mean, grind it, chip it, gnaw on it. Uh, uh, so it walks through all that. But except for oxygen gouging. And it says you can only use that on as-rolled steels. And the reason it gives you a laundry list of what you can do, but then that one exception is because oxygen gouging is extremely hot. And that goes back to the changing of our microstructure. Um, so that's... Uh, I think uh, I think that's all we need to really say about that one, Gary. Unless you got some uh, words of wisdom on that one. No, I don't have much on much on you know joint preparation. Like you say, the oxygen gouging is pretty much the one that's that's the red flag. But most other processes may be used, but that oxygen gouging throws up a big red flag. And if there's some other you know process that you want to try. Um, you can use it, but you just got to get the engineer to sign off on it. If there's some super secret special, you know, way that you're going to bevel your plates and it's not listed here, you know, the engineer can sign off on it. If Correct. there's something that's outside the rule book. All right. And then the, the next one, uh, which goes along with it is uh, material trimming. And th this is really only for cyclically loaded structures. Um, and this is where you need to cut back. Uh, the material and it gives a whole list of different ways that the material has been processed and basically what the the whole goal of this is is to potentially remove micro cracks uh, that's I mean if the material is being sheared uh, and it's thick stuff you could have micro cracking there rolled edges of plates you could have issues there um, so that's that's why it walks it walks through different scenarios and the amount of material you have to remove to get in quote the, a safe zone where there's no uh, there's no problems. Right. So that covers trimming. What do we got up next? Uh, we got thermal cutting processes, um, and. Basically, that allows electric arc gouging, including plasma, uh, oxy fuel cutting. Uh, that those are those are all allowed uh, in here. Yeah, so it gives you a whole different um, 
whole slew of different options. So you're not just stuck to one um, way to cut it. So exactly. Um, and, and along with what you said earlier, if you got some other super secret process, it can be approved or, I mean, maybe, I mean, another one that's, uh, I mean, anything that you could come up with, uh, that's not in that laundry list can be, uh, can be approved, uh, profile, uh, accuracy, that's basically making sure can you can you cut the the profile of whatever you're trying to cut out cut it straight cut a a, a shape that's um, that's all that that is uh, that that's done and the the reason in here for for sickly loaded structures freehand thermal cutting is it is only done with permission is you it's more likely to produce notches with freehand cutting as to following a template or a straight edge or uh, like a machine cutting process it's all about the the notches that can then be a stress concentrator for a fatigue crack to grow in uh in the the freehand cutting uh there's been multiple incidents where that has caused issues yeah, and that's once again it gets back to what we've been preaching is as you get into cyclically and dynamically loaded structures, there's just so many things that can go wrong. Things that might not be a issue when you're welding farm equipment or you know putting something together for your garage, you start having the same defect or discontinuity on a something that's cyclically loaded or a dynamically loaded structure it can be a fatigue situation that it might not be an issue now but seven years down the road and 120 million cars going across that thing then you got a a a different issue you got problems you got a defect that's going to take down a bridge or a structure yes um and and that basically plays in roughness requirements are also the smoother the the less likely of a of an issue uh, and how we have gouge notch limitations uh, that that all need to be that all need to be met. Uh, that's why I know some some fabricators to to get around all of this, especially on uh, which the next subject that we we're going to go on to is reentrant quarters. They actually drill them, and that removes almost all of their issues. There's uh they're not they're not borrowing any problems uh, by doing that. It takes a little longer. But they use a big, uh, a big uh, mag, mag drill with uh, a slug cutter, and life is easy. They don't have to go and measure anything because a drilled hole is magnitudes smoother than anything cut by uh, one of these oxyacetylene uh, or oxyfuel uh, processes. Well, and I think what the code, too, is looking at is you might have the greatest cutter and i mean oxy fuel man ever or person and they might be able to do it but if you get that apprentice or a guy that's been in a couple years or and you go have him make a cut and it's not nearly as smooth so that's why they they pay so much attention to this cut surfaces and um you know the roughness and like pete was saying you go with a drilled hole or a mechanically cut out hole 
you're going to have infinitely less problems and it's going to be a lot smoother than even what the best welder can cut out by hand. Correct. Correct. All right. How about 516 weld access holes, bean copes and connection material? Anything to add to that or is this one of those ones where we're just going to say read it and run with it? Well, I, a, a lot of what we've already discussed is basically what is covered in here. Uh, I mean, here it has some sizes uh, of, of that you have to look at following. Um, there's some requirements, especially if we're galvanizing it, uh, what you have to do there. And, and that's all, that's all about having the right, the right, uh, profile. But I think, uh, I think we have basically, uh, covered everything. Um, one thing just to, to be aware of when, when you're doing all this stuff in heavy sections and you do decide to go and use a, uh, a flame process, you have minimum preheating requirements. And a lot of these is grind uh, to bright metal, and you have to inspect the surface. And just so you're aware of, visual may not just be the best way to define these little these little indications. Um, it's not written in the code, but going to uh, Mag Particle, which is a cheap and easy way to to also look for little indications that you might not see from the eye. Uh, would be a, a good way to deal with, especially when you're dealing with real heavy uh, sections and you choose to, to flame cut as opposed to uh, drill or machine. All right. Yeah, and like you say, um, with PT and MT, they're not super expensive, non-destructive testing methods, and they'll find a lot of surface indications that might lead to problems later on down the road. All right, 517, tack welds and construction aid welds. General requirements. Okay, here we get in with tack welds. Tack welds and construction aid welds shall be made with a qualified or pre-qualified WPS and by qualified personnel. So your person that is doing the tack welding has to have qualifications. You need, if you qualify them as a welder, a full-on welder, they need to have paperwork. Or if you qualified them as a tack welder and went that provision, they need to have paperwork. You can't just grab a guy off the street or one of your laborers or something and say, okay, dude, you are now the tack welder. I need you to just start tacking this mess up. You need to have paperwork on them. Yep, that's exactly true, Gary. Um, and... One of the other things that really talks, this is where in cyclically loaded structures, the there's requirements for the engineer to give guidance because the fabricator may or may not know where uh, some of these exclusion zones are or tension, tension reversals. Those really need to be on the drawing, and then that needs to be communicated also to the shop floor. Uh, one of uh, one of my uh, trips that was for a uh, a mistake like this was we had some some big girders that were at a field uh, site, and I want to say they were like 
they were like 12 foot tall. They were big railroad girders. And someone took angle iron and just welded it right in the middle of the, or in, in the web to the ground so they wouldn't fall over. Well, the problem with that is they were made with no, no, no procedure at all. And they were just welded up and then they basically just bent the angle backwards and forced to break it off. So we had to go and grind them smooth, perform mag particle testing to make sure that it was all good. Uh, so tax wall, it's just like, well, it's just a tack. Is a tack could be more than a tack, especially placed in the wrong spot. Yeah. And you can get into situations where, um, Depending on the material, you just tacked it, but it was a quenched and tempered material. Maybe you've introduced some kind of stress concentration into that material. You don't, as the welder or the inspector, you don't maybe have the exact information of just how critical that particular location is on that beam or that girder. And it might be, you might have just introduced a catastrophic failure point to something. You don't know. That's why we got to try and follow the rules. Um, tack welds that are not incorporated in final welds and construction aid welds that are not removed shall meet the visual inspection requirements before a member is accepted. Tack welds, you can't have cracks, you can't have porosity, you can't have a bunch of defects or, you know, your tack welds, if they're going to be incorporated into the final weld, they need to, they need to be quality because you have a crack in a tack weld or you have porosity or some issue in a tack weld. It's you're going to chase that. That problem's going to go all the way through. It's just going to follow you all the way to the face of the weld. So you need to, you need to make sure that your tack welds are quality. Correct. And, and uh, there's a subset when we get into these uh, weld uh, tack welds that are incorporated in the final product is, when you deal with subarc, you, you you get a pass on a couple items, and the the reason you get the pass is subarc has the ability to penetrate very deeply, and it can consume or kind of chew up uh, what it runs over, including tack welds. But as you said, I mean we can't have crack tacks. That's that's not something. But what we can have when they're consumed by submerged arc welds is your your preheat for single pass tech welds isn't really required um but they can't be really big so you can't have them get over it's about three eighths of an inch or where it changes the contour of the surface of the submerged dark weld and this you really only run the problems in smaller uh long let's say like a flange to a web girder where you may have uh, tack welds that are a quarter of an inch in size, three sixteenths in size, and then you have a fillet weld going over them that's only a quarter of an inch. All of a sudden, it's like, hey, why is like every three feet or five feet, all of a sudden, there's a little ripple? We can't have that. So you would need to kind of knock them down with a grinder before uh, before going over them with a, a sub arc. All right. And there, there's a couple other ones. Uh, I mean, it's a, there, there's a list of them going through there. But what, what I'll also say about this is if if you're in the qualification kind of area, uh, what what I have always tried to do 
was use the same tacking process during my qual as I want to use in production to do this. And I usually put a macro there so I can tell someone that if they ever say, hey, how do you know it's consumed? I have a little picture to show them that, hey, there was supposed to be a tack weld there and there's no difference uh, in the weld metal. That's just, uh, though that's associated with qualification and not fabrication, that's a little lesson learned I got there. Oh, and another one that we kind of glossed over but gets back to acting like a grown-up and doing this stuff correctly. Tack welds incorporated into final welds shall be made with electrodes meeting the requirements of the final welds. These welds shall be cleaned prior to incorporation. So if you're doing a weld and it's, you know, a 90 KSI material, you can't be using 6010 and then incorporating those tack welds into your final weld or 7018 or whatever the material is. It has to meet the final weld um, requirements, the requirements of the final weld. Good, so good point, Gary. This is something you need to take into consideration before you turn your tack welders loose. You can't do it, even though it's going to hold it for it. If you're going to remove it and it's not going to be incorporated, yeah, you've got a number of different options there. But if it's going to be incorporated into the final weld, you need to make sure that it meets the requirements of the final weld. Yep. So, um, well, okay, so you covered submerged arc welds right there. We sure did. I think we got everything in uh, in uh, tack welds taken care of. How about 518 camber in built-up members? Anything we need to cover there? Uh, so in camber and built-up members, this is where you're building, let's say, uh, I mean, the easy example is a plate girder is where it comes up. And you're going to have shrinkage. Uh, so what it's talking about is make sure you include that uh, or try to include the, those kind of shrinkages before you cut the material. You may need to cut it a little long or a little wider uh, to, to, handle, to handle that. That's the, the gist of, uh, of that section right there. All right, so then that takes us on to splices. Uh, Gary, do we want to handle? We got. I mean, there's quite a bit more. Do we want to split this into two? Just yeah, we can split. Just we can end right there. If you want to call her quits, I'm good. Yeah, because I mean, we still got crap. I think six or eight more pages at least. Yeah. All right, we can end it right there. So, not a problem. <laughs> and. Holy crap, I guess uh, I got to look at this and understand this uh, dimensional tolerances of welded structural members. I haven't looked at this crap in a little while. I may need to educate myself so I sound intelligent. All right. <laughs> All right. I'll throw that booger on you. I'll All go right. through it too. So. All, All right. right. Hey, so we'll what, do we, what do we need to do with that AWS lady? Well, here's I'll, I'll just lay my cards on the table here. Um, I was going to throw you, I was going to take the, um, the stuff that I sent her and okay. I was going to do that one. And I say that because I've been all that. I'd like to make some money back on that, oh, yeah. material, that material that I've. No, I mean, Gary, the way I'd look at it is look, I mean, you're, you're doing the heavy lifting on it. I mean, I have no problem. I mean, I mean, some, I mean, where the splits in your favor or something like, I mean, I don't know if it's, if I'm, I'm assuming what 
she meant by was like it's I don't know if it's 900 a person or is it 900 split up, but I have no problem with you taking the lion's share of that. I mean, I think you've done, I mean, the biggest, the only thing, okay, the biggest thing I did or the only thing I really did was help make the connection to where, hey, here we exist. Uh, and that lady knew me to refer us to, to other, other ladies. So, but like you have more time invested in already existing things and more time to handle it now than I do. So however you want to do it, Gary, I'm, I'm, I'm I was, up for, I was going to take the heavy lifting on that one. And then, um, I guess like the one with the other two lighter ones, uh, where it was like people and what CWIs can do or, you know what I mean? Stuff Man, like that. Is that one, do we really want to handle that one? I don't know. I don't know either. I mean, I guess this is, I mean, okay. What I'd almost be better at doing is guys, look, this is where CWIs get over their head real fast. Uh, I mean, who do we know that is a good, a, a, a good person that we can either ping for a bunch of stuff or, I don't know if I want to, I mean, I mean, unless you know someone that you want to be like, Hey, this guy's really good at talking and whatnot. And he can really speak more from an inspector per perspective than you or I could. Uh, well, it's, it's two hours. So she says the people skills, um, about CWIs or people skills running about two hours. Okay. So to me, that's, um, you know, some of the, okay, maybe it's, we should be able to cover CWIs, you know, put together something where you, where we dig into the AWS material, you know, okay, yeah. that's what a CWI is. Okay. Here's some things that I've learned, you know, okay. Dealing with engineers. These are some things where you could get in trouble. These are some things where you, you know what I mean? Yes. That, that's exactly how I was going to approach it too. And then, yeah the people skills side of it. Okay. Here's some things to understand. Okay. If I'm dealing with engineers, I'm going to write a, uh, I'm going to write a report or I'm going to write, you know, write everything out before I even go to, to the direction of the engineer. I'm going to do these three things. You know what I yeah. mean? We don't have to, I mean, to me, it's like a, a quick pep talk or people skills or, you know what I mean? Yes, no, no, no. I, 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 I can, I can see that. That sounds like a good idea. And basically, basically, like also, like, how do you deal with the craft? I mean, uh, I think that would be like another, another good tangent to go on that one is dealing with the craft. How not to be an asshole? <laughs> oh, yeah, and that's it. You know, explaining, hey, dude, we, this is, there's, a, there's a defect here. We need to cut it out. I always use the word we. I never yes. tell them, you know. Exactly. And yeah, I think the things like that, I think, you know, we don't have to, and then everything else, you know, some slides out of the QC one and okay, this is, you know, ethics and yeah. blah, blah, blah. And these are things you need to do. And sometimes you're going to have to be the unpopular person. Exactly. But go about being the unpopular person professionally professionally and with you know you're going to have to deliver bad news and if you don't want if you don't like being that person this is not you gotta get yeah you gotta get some thick skin um yeah all right i got some okay i mean yeah 
I guess I got some I got some ideas to I guess help flush those out. Uh, did she give you? I don't remember seeing. Did was there a timeline in there for anything? Um, she said I'm prepping out a contract now for a more fleshed out option. Will you be both teaching that one on the other two? Do you guys have a feel feel more comfortable in speaking to one versus the other? If not, perhaps reviewing all about CWIs and potential business opportunities for them may help some folks out right now. Yeah, I guess that, I don't know. I'll send her back something tomorrow. I'll, I'll right. bounce it back and we'll go from there. All right. But she didn't say, um, hopefully late summer or fall, we can schedule some live DT seminars in the Houston area. And isolate you, an additional facility. Yeah, I saw that. I mean, so, I mean, I guess, uh, I mean, okay, so if that's the timeline for live stuff, what's the timeline for, do, okay, like in-person stuff, what's the timeline for doing this live? I guess, I guess she doesn't have that yet. Yeah, live events, late summer or fall. Yeah, no, I guess, yeah, but I'm talking like the, 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 the webinar one. Oh, I don't know. Maybe earlier uh, than that. No, I'd assume earlier than that. I mean, to me, okay, I figured it was like, or I guess the gist I got was, hey, can you all put something together in the next couple of weeks? I guess uh, I guess we should probably discuss that with her tomorrow. I've got some stuff pretty much. I've, I've done a lot of heavy lifting, and I, it's not perfect, but, you know, under the gun and give me a couple of days, I can – well, yeah, I figure. I mean, if you've, there. yeah, I said, Gary, I mean, you've done most of the heavy lifting, uh, and I'd say, I mean, we could both probably, I mean, we can, I think on Skype, you can, you can share the screen and we can doctor it up together, and uh, basically, I mean, go from there. Um, I mean, but like I said, I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm a hat, I'm, I mean, dude, I mean, Gary, I mean, it's like, hey, dude, you know what? You've done almost everything. You, I mean, if it's if it's nine beans, you just you just take the first round and don't worry. I'm, I won't worry about anything. Uh, so, I mean, because uh, you're right, you've done all this. Y'all have had that website up and going for a while. Yeah, you still there? Did I lose you? Hello.